Well, good morning. I am Alan Finley, your church planting resident here at Blue Valley Baptist Church. And I am so excited to be with you this morning. It's something I've been looking forward to for quite a while, but anytime we get to open up the Word together, it's truly a gift. Now, I don't know about you, but this is probably my favorite time of year, even when there are bits of snow involved on some days. Uh, we get to see the, the beautiful beginnings of life as the season turns. And in hopefully a day or two, we'll have a little bit of sunshine that helps bring smiles to our faces again. But in this season, we get to see the Lord bring life once again to the land. And in, in a few weeks, we will get to see the season of Easter as we celebrate the resurrection as a body gathered together. We get to see our Lord on display. But to truly value and understand the gift that those are, both in the coming of the spring season and in the resurrection itself, sometimes it helps us to take a step back and to see the darkness that preceded the light, to think about the cold of winter, to truly appreciate the joy of spring. And in our text today, we'll see the pain and the sorrow that our Savior endured so that we can best celebrate the resurrection to come. So today and for the next several weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to look back upon a prophecy about the Savior. Specifically, we'll see how Jesus was predicted to be the suffering servant. So go ahead and open up your Bibles with me and turn to Isaiah chapter 52. We'll begin in verse 13. But if you're unfamiliar with this book or this chapter... Isaiah was probably the most well-known prophet in Israel's history. Uh, in fact, he is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. So he, his words are echoing throughout New Testament pages over and over again. And in this prophecy today, we'll see something that we get to look forward to from his perspective. But throughout the pages of his writing, there's often much heaviness, much darkness as well. We see him prophesy of Israel's destruction, of the coming, uh, carrying off into captivity. But they're the bright spots as well that we cling to, the hope of the Savior to come. And in our text today, we'll see the beautiful picture of Jesus on display. But something that astounds me in our text is that Isaiah wrote these words 700 years before Jesus' birth. Now personally, I have a hard time comprehending just how long 700 years is. But to frame it from our perspective today, 700 years ago from this point in history, of course, America wasn't a nation yet, but 700 years ago today, Christopher Columbus hadn't even discovered the continent yet. All right, That's a long time, 700 years also, if you think of, of course, there weren't uh, cell phones or cars or the internet 700 years ago. 700 years ago today, the printing press wasn't even invented yet. A lot of life has happened over the course of 700 years. But as we'll see in the text today, there is such accuracy, such beautiful perspective that we will see clearly Jesus in these words that were written so long before he physically stepped into this earth. 
So today, we'll look at Isaiah's words about Jesus, the suffering servant. In particular, we'll see that he was a man of sorrows. Now that phrase, man of sorrows, it's a weighty one, isn't it? I think so many of us, probably all of us, have had moments of pain or difficulties or sorrow in our life. Some of us may have even had long seasons of sorrow, such as through the loss of a loved one or significant physical or emotional pain that you've carried for a long time. Personally, I went through a season of sorrow when I was a college student at Southwest Baptist University. Over the course of about a two-year period, I had lost two of my grandparents. I had lost the trust of someone that I intended to model my life after. And through an autoimmune condition, I actually lost most of the hair on the right side of my head. Now, that was a season of sorrow, but just to clarify, my life wasn't defined by sorrow. And I think you can attest to that as well. In those moments of pain and suffering, there's still bright spots. I had a wonderful marriage. I had a great ministry that I got to be a part of. I had wonderful friends and family surrounding me. But yet, there's a weightiness in that sorrow. In our text today, we'll see Jesus not just encountering sorrow, but we see him defined as the man of sorrow. You and I, we live in a broken world that has felt the impact of sin. And unfortunately, every one of us have experienced the sorrow that comes from that in one way or another. But in today's passage, we will see the hope that comes in the midst of our sorrow. And I pray that as we examine Jesus' life, we will see his love and his sacrifice on display in such a way that we will be encouraged to adopt that same heart toward others. So let's begin today, Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13. The prophet writes, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now God the Father is communicating here through the prophet Isaiah, and he begins with an attention getter. He's like, look here, come on, give me your attention, listen closely, this is really important. He says, behold, pay attention, my servant shall act wisely. Now, we may hear that, that phrase and brush it off, but there is so much for us to grab hold of here. That phrase, my servant shall act wisely, has two things that we need to really latch on to today. First of all, that phrase, my servant, it conveys both uh, an identity, a oneness, a position of honor that we see upon this servant, and we also see an attitude of humility. Regarding the position of honor, the servant here has a close relationship with the master, the servant is one who represents the master to those that he encounters. And through that, he holds the honor, he holds the esteem, he holds the position of the master. Look at John 10.30, if you would. Uh, here Jesus tells the crowd, I and the Father are one. He doesn't say, I and the Father are fairly close, or I met the guy once. He says, I and the Father are one. You see that the honor, the position 
that Jesus is in because he has that unity with the Master, with the Father. We also see in the text that we read earlier in the service that attitude of humility. In Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, we see Jesus being described as one who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. We see Jesus himself saying that his work is of service. In Mark 10, 45, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when we see Jesus referred to as my servant here, be sure to remember both the honor and the humility that come with that title. A second important note in the phrase, my servant shall act wisely, is the guarantee that's found here. Isaiah is pointing our attention to this phrase, he shall act wisely. Now, that means so much more than just Jesus will make good decisions or he will be a good steward of what was given to him. This phrase, my servant shall act wisely, it's a guarantee. I think a better translation of this would be, my servant will be successful or my servant shall prosper. In other words, it's saying that Jesus will accomplish his purposes. Have you ever been asked the question, what's one thing you would do if you were guaranteed that you couldn't fail? You know, maybe you would start a new business venture, or maybe you would try your hand at that hobby you've always been interested in, or maybe you would work to repair that relationship that you've had regrets over. But let's pause just for a moment and consider the importance of these words in Isaiah, because this is so much bigger than a career change or a bold step in your personal story, this promise that is guaranteed in Isaiah, this is on the grandest scale that you can imagine. This is beyond Jesus' personal successes in life. This purpose that he accomplishes is something that has reached across the pages of history. It has reshaped all of humanity and our ability to find healing and restoration through relationship with our Creator. Our world, it feels as if it's on the precipice of so much disaster. We think of the conflict in Ukraine and Russia. You open the newspaper, scroll through Twitter, and you see the world falling apart in so many ways. And yet, that doesn't make our Lord any less sovereign. We are secure in his promises, even when the world around us is uncertain. We see the same promise that God will accomplish his purposes all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Think with me in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. God speaks to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Even at the heart of our failure and our rebellion of our good and loving creator, God has made a promise that he will accomplish his purposes. He says, the one born of a woman, Jesus, will crush the head of the serpent. 
I've made my promise and I will uphold it. Continuing in verse 13, Isaiah writes, He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now from our perspective at this point in history, you and I are in a unique age. Some theologians call it an already not yet. In that Christ has accomplished his purpose. Think of his life. He lived a sinless life. Check. He died upon the cross for our sins. Check. He was buried and raised from the grave on the third day. Check. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Check. But there is still a part that has not yet come. One day soon, he will return in judgment. And all creation will recognize him as the God over all. And every nation and tribe and tongue will gather around and give him the worship and the praise that he is due. We have not yet experienced that, but it is certain it will be accomplished. And we can cling to that even in our sorrows, knowing it will come to pass. Verses 14 and 15 we see how God will accomplish His purposes through the suffering servant. As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and His form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall He sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of Him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Now, we were just told that he will accomplish his purposes. This is a strange victory that we read about, isn't it? He says that the nations will despise him. They will, in fact, shut their mouths because of him. You see, God, he tells us that he will accomplish his purposes. But he doesn't paint a rosy picture without also showing us the thorns that accompany it. The nations rejected Jesus, and it wasn't a surprise to him. It's important that we understand the reality of the situation here. Have you ever had one of those experiences where you terribly underestimated your opponent? Uh, not too long ago, I was playing chess with my nine-year-old son, Titus, and I'm, I'm nowhere close to a chess expert. Hear me in that. But there came a point in the game where I was seriously doubting my ability to come out of this with a win. That punk kid had me cornered, and he had taken my queen, a rook, uh, one of my knights, and several of my pawns. Now, hear me, I, I did still beat him, and I remind him of that often. <laughs> but I seriously underestimated him, and at that point, I recognized that I can't let my guard down around him anymore. But similarly, and to a much larger and more significant scale, the nations and the kings, they terribly underestimated Jesus, the suffering servant. Because from their perspective, he was a nobody from a pretty long line of nobodies, living in the middle of nowhere, and the nations, they rejected him 
and considered him just a nuisance, but nothing they couldn't handle. They arrested him and made him a public display, thinking that would take care of him. But recall what was done to our Lord at the crucifixion. They, the nations, specifically the Romans, they beat him beyond recognition so that he no longer even appeared human. They tortured and abused him, specifically referring to his appearance. John Calvin translated verse 15 to say, His beauty was defaced by the perverse judgment of men. His beauty was defaced. Next, they nailed him to the cross and lifted him up to mock and berate this man that they considered a lunatic. And as the final breath left his lungs with a cry, the earth responded, both in terror and praise. The the rocks were split, the graves were opened, and the nations, as Isaiah predicted, were astonished. They had underestimated this man, and the one that they had considered a nobody was in fact the one who had been prophesied of over 700 years earlier. Their astonishment, it would not stop his purposes. Their lack of knowledge and understanding would not prevent him from accomplishing his work. Because the one they objectified and beat and killed was the very one who would sprinkle many nations. Now this sounds strange to our ears, but to Isaiah's audience, they would hear that phrase, sprinkle many nations, and they would recognize the priestly language here. They were used to seeing the sacrifices played out, that the priest would dip their fingers in the blood of the sacrificed animal, and they would sprinkle the blood upon whatever they intended to cleanse. And here, Jesus took his own blood and sprinkled it upon the nations, signifying that he would bring cleansing, that he would open the way for salvation and restoration to the very nations that killed him. When the kings realize what they've done and how terribly they've underestimated their opponent, they will shut their mouths in shame and terror, the prophet writes. When they see him high and lifted up like he promised, they will understand, along with the rest of creation, just who this suffering servant truly is. And in the next three verses, we see the audience shift. Now Isaiah is speaking specifically to the people of Israel. He writes in verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah 53, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In these verses, we first hear the question, Who has believed? Most most people who hoped for the Messiah did not recognize him when he arrived. Think back to Jesus' own experiences. 
The people in his hometown, they were offended that he would claim to be a teacher and a prophet. His brothers didn't believe that he was the Messiah. The religious leaders claimed that he got his powers from demons. Even one of Jesus' own twelve who saw him perform miracles, who heard his teachings, who witnessed his love, even one rejected him. But that's exactly what Isaiah prophesied. He said that this suffering servant would grow up like a young plant. That means that Jesus grew up much like you and I. He had a fairly normal childhood. He didn't just show up on the scene like a mighty oak tree. He was a little sprout. And again, that points to the humility in which Jesus stepped into this world. He didn't come riding a stallion or being pulled by chariots. He didn't fly in on a Black Hawk helicopter. He came as a totally dependent infant in a little backwoods stable, more or less ignored and forgotten by the rest of the world. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So not only did he come on the scene much differently than the Israelites expected, but apparently based on his appearance, he was fairly easy to miss as well. And we don't know exactly what Jesus looked like, but according to this verse, I would be willing to bet that he was pretty much an average Joe. By all accounts, he would look like a typical first century Jewish man. Average height, average build, olive skin, dark hair and eyes. He probably wasn't dressed all that well because he grew up in poverty He wasn't on Nazareth's who's who list of up-and-coming leaders. He didn't have anything external that would draw us in or attract us to him. And as if that weren't strange enough, God's plan, how he would accomplish his purposes of exalting the suffering servant, it included more than just a savior with an ignorable appearance. He was to be hated and rejected. Verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Do you hear the weight that Jesus carried? He wasn't just ignored, he was despised. He wasn't just overlooked, he was rejected. He lived a life of pain. He knew grief. He was treated as unclean. And yet, he chose to enter into this. He chose to step into this world as the suffering servant, as the man of sorrows, because he considered it worth the cost. Now, as I said earlier, this prophecy of the suffering servant, it was written 700 years before Jesus' birth, But can't you see him described so clearly in these words today? After examining this text, I want to encourage us to do three things. First, I want to encourage us all to see the life of the suffering servant. One beautiful truth that we can see clearly through our text today is that Jesus is on display all throughout the scriptures. He is the focus, not only of Scripture, but of all history as well. 
But I sometimes wonder if we see Jesus with as much clarity as the prophets of old saw him. When you look at the life of Jesus, what do you see? Do you recognize exactly who it is that you worship and follow? Because we can clearly see that Jesus was a first century Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter. His parents were so poor and forgotten that they laid him in a feeding trough. His family had to flee their homeland as refugees. His upbringing was far from noteworthy. He had no known status or achievements. His social network was made up of rejects and outcasts. His career path was laughable. He left his occupation to become an unaccredited, uneducated, untrained teacher. His family considered him crazy. You could go on and on. Is that your Jesus? Do you see the life that he lived? It wasn't a life of fame and fortune or comfort and luxury. It wasn't a life of relaxation and ease. It was a life of rejection and suffering. So not only do I want you to see the life of Jesus, but I want you to follow the life of the suffering servant as well. 1 John 2.6 tells us, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What might it look like for you and I to follow Jesus' example here? I think for one matter, we can have the confidence of certain success, even in the midst of rejection or offense. Not that we can decide to have a life of achievement or prosperity but that in the end, whatever we have to sacrifice is worthwhile because our Savior will be high and lifted up. He will accomplish His purposes. And when we're living out His purposes, we can have confidence that He will bring them to pass. We can also follow the suffering servant in our willingness to endure discomfort and pain for the good of the people that we care about. This is one of the core values at Overflow Church where I'm leading. We call it willing sacrifice. And it means that we'll choose to lay down our comforts and our priorities so that others might clearly see and hear and respond to the good news of what Christ has done for us. And that could mean that we're willing to give up our seat for a guest. Or it means that we're willing to share and serve in whatever ways are allowed. When opportunities come, we're quick to lay ourselves down for the good of others. Consider what that might look like in your own life. How can you follow the example of the suffering servant and live a life of willing sacrifice? I'm confident that for all of us, it means we step out of our comfort zones have that awkward conversation to tell others what Jesus has done in our lives and invite them to join us. And that leads us to our final point. We need to share the life of the suffering servant. Did you know that only 52% of Christians shared their faith at least one time within the past year? Honestly, I think that's being generous. We get so excited 
when new people come to our church, and we should, absolutely. We're glad that every single person is here. But I think we also need to step back and understand that we all have a responsibility here. I read a study recently that says for an established church, between 80 and 90% of that church's growth is from transferring from one church to another. And again, we're thankful for each person that the Lord brings to us. and We can disciple and shepherd together. But that means only 10 to 20% of growth in all churches across America that are 15 years or older. Only 10 to 20% is from salvations. That's part of the reason we are excited about church planting, both here at Blue Valley and across the Southern Baptist Convention, because that same study shows that between 60 and 80% of new members in a church plant that's within 15 years of being launched, 60 to 80% of that growth is from new salvations. So together, we embrace this call because all of us have the mission in front of us. All of us have received the good news of the gospel. And all of us have been commissioned to carry that good news to the people around us. I have one final question for us this morning. Do you believe that God put you here and now for a reason? I do. I wholeheartedly believe that. God could have placed you anywhere on the planet at any point in human history, and he chose to place you here and now. That means that there is a purpose for each of us. And your neighbors are blessed because God put you in that neighborhood right now. That means that your coworkers are blessed, even the annoying ones, because God placed you here and now. We are sent out on a mission, all of us who have been redeemed by the Lord. And people need to hear that. Let's follow the example of Jesus. Let's share his life with the people around us. And let's pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more who will do so also. That's my prayer that in these weeks leading up to Easter, we would go out into the world with the same determination and mindset that Jesus did. And let's keep our eyes fixed, not only on the crosses and the sorrows that we carry, but on the certainty of the resurrection and the exaltation that follows after. Jesus will accomplish his purposes. And it's my prayer that he would accomplish those purposes in part through the faithful love, service, and sacrifice of you and me.